Welcome, everybody. So we are doing our, our series on the Ten Commandments, and we're going to talk about taking the Lord's name in vain. Again, it's a, uh, not a long text tonight, but a very important concept. And I think, you think about taking the Lord's name in vain. This is one of those, if you survey people and you ask them, you know, what are the most important of the Ten Commandments? I don't think, uh, this one might even rank maybe last. Maybe. Probably would rank last as least important. Um, we live certainly in an age where people think words, what are words? You know, we, we grow up hearing silly little nursery rhymes about sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me, which of course is a total lie. We tell lots of lies to our children in nursery tales. Um, that's one of them. Um, words really matter to God. Our God is a God who takes very great care to say things well, and he cares to preserve his words so that they could be for us. Even language itself is a precious gift of God. And we come here to this commandment, we find that this is actually one of the most important and profound commandments for understanding who we were made to be and for understanding how we can live in community. Because I will tell you, if you're in a community where words do not matter, where words cannot be trusted, it's not a community that will last, whether it's a relationship or a nation, or a ministry, or a church. Words really matter. God says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, these words, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. And um, I, I wanted to read you a little, little excerpt from Eugene Peterson. He's the guy that translated the message and has a new book about kind of his sort of take on spiritual theology, connecting theology and life. And I, I actually meet with some guys on Tuesday mornings and we talk about this book. And that's actually why I decided to do the Ten Commandments. Um, he, what he had to say about it was just so helpful in thinking about the Ten Commandments for community. But listen to what he says about this. He says, God is not a name or a concept to be bandied about frivolously. God is not verbal decoration to give color or enhancement to our speech. We cannot give emphasis or authority to who we are or what we're doing or saying by throwing in the name God, no matter how impressive it sounds. When we reduce God to a name among names, all names eventually become depersonalized, mere ciphers to identify others by function or role without regard for the dignity and reverence inherent in every person and everything. Eventually, language itself loses its capacity for expressing wonder and adoration and intimacy and most of all, belief and love. A word, any word, but beginning with the name God, used in vain, soon becomes flattened into words that are only useful in getting and spending. Blasphemy, using the name of God to curse or reject or dismiss, is only a more conscious use of God's name in vain. But all casual, thoughtless, cliched uses of the name, and perhaps especially among those who consider themselves devout believers in God, fall under the warning. Language in itself, beginning with the name God, is holy, a precious gift that makes it possible to live in community. A primary necessity for living in community is to tend reverently to the way we use language, beginning with the way we say God, but then extending into the way we use language around the supper table, when buying groceries or a pair of shoes, and when answering the telephone. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that as we come to you now that you would 
restore for us a sense that language really matters. That it matters to you and it should matter to us. And Lord, as we face even the ways we've misused language, both individually and corporately, um, in, as Christians or as people who are seeking out Christianity and what it's about, Lord, I pray that you would speak truth to us tonight that would cause us to be humbled, that would drive us to ask you for grace and mercy because only there is there hope for us. And only there, from that place of clinging to your cross, as we sang even just a minute ago, only from there can we find power to actually live as truthful people whose words matter, as people whose words can be counted on. We pray that you would make us such a people and we pray that you would use even the foolishness of preaching to that end for your kingdom and your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sifting all the time. We, Jesus teaches us to pray in Jesus' name. And yet, this concept of taking the, name, the Lord's name in vain, for some reason, we think of it mostly in terms of cursing. I want you to understand this concept. Is, I, I hope the quote from Eugene Peterson helped you get a, get a feel for this. This is a huge commandment, and there are a lot of things that are covered under this. It really is one of the most profound commandments for living in community, and yet, unfortunately, one of the ones that's been reduced to being really not that important and really just about cussing. And why is that really a big deal anyway? Um, so what is this commandment really all about? We'll talk about that. What is this commandment really all about? Uh, we'll talk some about how it's vital for any community, Christian community or community out there that's not part of the church, to take seriously what this commandment is talking about. Then we're going to look particularly at how we in the church not assuming everybody here is a Christian, but I'm saying we who here are, call ourselves Christians, why we should be particularly concerned and particularly distraught over taking the name of the Lord in vain and particular ways that Christians do that. And then we're going to talk about Jesus and how he fits into this whole thing. All right? Because the way Jesus fits into this whole thing is the key for us not just despairing, um, but actually finding hope and being changed. And that's important because the Ten Commandments are not the end of the story. Remember I, I said this one of the first weeks? The Ten Commandments come in a context. They're not the first thing God said. They're not the last thing God said. But they're certainly important. And they point us actually even to further things that he's going to say and even preeminently the things he's going to say to us by his son, Jesus, who came not just speaking, but he came, as he said, to give his life as a ransom for many. And how does that connect to what we're talking about tonight. I hope to tie all that together for us tonight. So what's the commandment really all about? The, the heart of it is this. Words matter. Language is a precious gift from God that is vital for the establishing and maintaining of community, any community. We are, as God's image bearers, to care about language used for God. But actually, all language connects to God. And so it's not just that we pay particular attention when we talk about God, but to use language in a frivolous way is always to run afoul of what God is after in this commandment. He cares about how we talk. He does. Now, as we're going to say, he cares about what's in your heart. He doesn't care just about how you talk. Do not covet certainly gets to the heart issues. And there's a heart issue here as well, which is this. Do we, do we submit even the way we talk 
to the Lord and what he's designed for us? Or do we feel that, well, I can say whatever I want? Well, we live in a country, again, some of these, um, some of these commandments seem downright undemocratic and downright un-American. And we live, last week we talked about freedom to worship as you want and how God says, no, you need to worship me in this particular way. And here we have it again. Are we free to say anything we want whenever we want? God would say no. There are some things, there are a lot of things that you need to take into consideration when you speak particularly when you speak about me or for me. And in particular, the issue is, do your words correspond to reality? Literally what it means to take the Lord's name in vain means for the Lord's name to not be connected to reality. Jesus talks about, about uh, language, and it says this in Matthew chapter 5, and I put this little passage down uh, for you on the outline. He says, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about language, and he says, Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oaths, but keep the oaths you made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes. And your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now that's really interesting. And I would contend that this connects what Jesus is saying here, flows out of what God is getting at with this commandment about not taking the Lord's name in vain. Here in particular he's saying, you people swear by all kinds of different things because you don't want to run afoul of swearing by God's name and possibly, if you don't keep your word, then maybe breaking this commandment. See, the, the Jews had, had all these ways of trying to get as close as they could sometimes to breaking the commandments without actually breaking them, and we do the same thing. People are always, at, especially, you know, you talk to a teenager about, you know, what they can do with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. They always want to know, well, what's, where's the line? And you say, well, there's, the Bible doesn't say there's a line. Uh, well, we want to get at issues of the heart. Um, Anyway, we're no different than them in this. But here's what Jesus is saying is, you should be people whose words can be trusted. Don't get caught up in, well, if I swear by you know, this, then I won't actually be breaking this commandment if I break my word. No, of course you're breaking it. Because whatever you swear by is connected to God. Because you're connected to God. Everything that's made is connected to God. Your words matter. The issue that's being gotten at here is, do you, as an image bearer of God, reflect God in the way you speak and in the reverence you have both for God, his name, and his image bearers, all those who bear his name and his image? That's what God's getting at here. And Jesus says you should be people whose yes is yes and no is no, who don't need an extra sort of guarantee for people. No, I'm really telling the truth this time. You can trust me now, uh, you know, swear on this. Or, you know, um, what's that one? Um, cross the needle, hope to die. Or was it cross my finger, hope to die? Stick a needle in my eye. We do all these things like we add things to so say, well, I really, really mean it. Or we swear on a Bible sometimes, right? We make people in the courtrooms. Do, do we still do that in courtrooms? Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to know how you guys know that. Um, but we, we uh, you know, yeah, they do that still. So we're always, you understand this concept that people are basically untrustworthy, and so we have to add things to hopefully keep them 
honest and true to their words. Jesus says God's people and all of those made in God's image should not be like that. They should be people whose words are as trustworthy as their God. To take God's or anyone's name in vain is literally to take it in unreality. In vain literally means there's nothing there. It's to invoke God's name, but there's really nothing there. There's no substance there. It's to say, I'm bringing God into this, but you have no real relationship with him, and therefore you can't bring him into it. Or you're saying, you know, I bring God's authority into the way I speak about this situation, but you don't really have the right to do that because you're not speaking the way he would speak. Uh, it is claim, it's a claim a relationship and an authority that are not yours in reality, ultimately. Jesus gets at this a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, where he says this. This is one of the most chilling passages in the Bible. But Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, this is one of the most extreme examples of taking the name of the Lord in vain. But notice, it's people that say, Lord, Lord, that cry out to him and claim his name and do all kinds of things in his name. But there's no reality of relationship there to back it up. So what that means is, just using the words in the right way is not what this commandment is getting at. I mean, these people do all these things in Jesus' name. They tack it on the end or the beginning of whatever they're doing, but it doesn't matter. Because this commandment is not just concerned with you saying the wrong word or, oops, you know, I said something. It's not concerned with that as much as it's concerned with, is there a correspondence between your words and reality? Is there a correspondence between what you claim and what you say and reality? You see, names, whether it's the name of God or any other name, names open doors and invoke the authority of the person whose name you use. Now, I don't know, um, in Nashville, it's not real cool to be a name dropper. But I remember, I thought I was really, you know, I used to be in the, in the music business. Yeah, it's in music. And I, um, you, know, I, I, you know, the funny thing is, a lot of you guys are, you know, in college, you're freshmen, sophomores, your friends 10 years from now are probably, you know, you're most likely going to be people that are, you know, big-name people in the music business. It just kind of happens that way. But they're just your friends, and they just kind of grow up, right? So it's a weird thing. I remember thinking that I had a pretty good handle on that. No, my identity's not in, um, you know, who I know and what I used to do. And then I went off to seminary, and I found, you know, in, in the space of one week, like several times talking with people, that I dropped names of people that I knew who lived back in Nashville. And I thought, this is so weird. I, nev I never did this in Nashville. But here now I'm in seminary, nobody knows me, and I feel like I have to have a little extra something to justify who I am. So I'll do it by somebody that I know. And I'm important because I know somebody who's important that you really like. Names do that. Now, you know, sometimes you need a name to get, you know, in a, get a callback for a job that you're pursuing, and you have to use someone's name. I do this sometimes. I say to students, say, call so-and-so and tell them that I told you to call. And if they invoke my name, the person might actually call them back. Who knows? So you know this, right, that names really matter. But here's the thing. If you use 
somebody's name, whether it's God's or even somebody else's, you better make sure that there's a reality behind it. Heaven forbid if you say, well, so-and-so told me to call you, and then they call that person and find out that this person doesn't know you. Depart from me. I never knew you. You don't want to hear that. You don't want somebody that's calling your references, you know, to call one of your references, and they say, I don't, I don't know that person. I've had that happen sometimes, actually. People have put me down as a reference and thinking I know who they are, and I forget their name, and they didn't call me and tell me they did that. And so don't do that. If you do that, it's fine, but call me and tell me, because sometimes I'm really bad with names. Um, but here, that's the thing, right? Names really matter. Now, again, you know, cursing matters too. And let, let me just tell you, how does cursing fit into this? Because it is connected. And, and here's the way I think of it. Again, this commandment is getting at the fact that God cares about our words. He cares about our words. And he cares about the words that we use, particularly towards his image bearers. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you call your brother raka, which means fool or worthless person, that you deserve the judgment fire of hell. That's pretty strong. You know, if you think that words don't really matter very much, you've got to contend with Jesus on that one because he says they do matter. But, but here's, you know, here's the thing. Why, did, why is that a big deal? The reason that's a big deal is because God takes his image bearers very seriously. He cares very much for whether we give due reverence to those who bear his image. And this is going to come up again when we talk about thou shalt not murder. It's going to come up again. The whole, what does it mean, the image of God and man, and when we attack that, is a, is a big deal to God. Um, but, and, and you think about most of the words that we consider curse words or impolite words in our society, most of them have to do with either God's image bearers and speaking about them in a way that is somewhat less than human, um, speaking of things of defecation, as that's sort of the whole thing. Um, a particular, you know, the Bible talks at one point about things, parts of the body that are honorable and dishonorable. Most of the words that are swear words in our society focus on things that are more dishonorable and focus on them and makes that sort of the whole thing, right? You regard somebody as this sort of less honorable function of the body and you describe them that way. Or that a lot of them have to do with sex, right? which is a wonderful gift of God, something he cares very much about, something he created to be a beautiful, wonderful thing. We're going to talk about that as well when we get to do, do not commit adultery. And we use that in a way that's dehumanizing, that makes, that makes for less than what God uh, intended for that image. So cursing, most of the words that we consider cursing in our society are connected to how we regard the image of God as it's expressed in man. But I will tell you that the Bible doesn't have a list of words that you can't use. Again, the, the, the issue is, are you reverencing the image of God? Do you consider that really special and important, like God himself does? That, that's really the issue. And, and the prophets in the Bible actually use some very strong language, very impolite language when it's necessary, when it's appropriate. And there are times when it's appropriate. Now that, you know, for a lot of people who've been raised in kind of Evangelical churches are like, well, it could never be appropriate. Well, you know, the Bible uses words that are just cleaned up for our, in our English translations. They're, they are. Um, there, there are words that are considered very uncouth, and yet the Bible uses them. I, I thought it was funny, you know, um, 
Derek Webb a couple of years ago put out this record with um, Wedding Dress. You guys, probably a lot of you guys heard that song. He talks about, I am a whore, I do confess, and all these Christian bookstores um, wouldn't stock the record because they thought that that was really not good. And I, I, just, I, I just wanted to ask these bookstore owners, well, do you stock the Bible? Have you read Ezekiel chapter 16? Go read Ezekiel chapter 16, um, where it talks about, you know, how, you know, God, you know, found Israel as this infant still covered in her mother's blood. She'd just been born, and he cleaned her up. And, you know, then he kind of, he basically says, and then I, I raised you, and I made you beautiful, and you used the gifts that I gave you to prostitute yourself to all these other lovers and became a whore. And not only that, you were a bad businesswoman because other whores make people pay for it, but you actually paid them to make love to you. That's very strong language, and that's in the Bible, right? So who cares about a song? Um, but we get, we get caught up on the things without understanding, again, the reality. If the reality is that, that we're whores, then that's the language we probably need to use. The Bible uses it all the time. As a matter of fact, the pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, Ray Ortland, wrote a whole book called Whoredom. And, and I'm dying to get him to come here and speak about it sometime for a convo where he basically surveys why does the Bible use that horrible graphic image? It's because, it's because God is a jealous lover, and no other language really will do. No other language will really do. So there, there are times for that. All right. Well, think about, think about how vital it is for any community, not even a Christian community, for there to be a correspondence between our words and reality, because that's the essence of this, to use the Lord's name in vain it's to use his, use his name in a way that doesn't correspond to reality. Maybe it's to use it, invoke his name when you don't have a real relationship with him, so there's no reality there. But there are other ways we do it too. Now again, it's vital in our society. This isn't just a Christian concern that words and reality measure up. It's why we have laws against slander and perjury. It's why we have copyright laws that your, if this is your work and your name on it, that those things need to correspond to reality. Otherwise, it's a problem. It's why we should be outraged when we hear spin. It's why we should be outraged when we, you know, our congressmen can write things in the congressional record that aren't true, like they were there at a certain vote. You know they can do that? Yes. It's craziness. There's a lot of craziness. There's a lot of things that get labeled really in ways that are opposite to the reality. Advertising, all that kind of stuff. If you're going to go into advertising, you need to take this commandment very seriously. What does it mean for you as a Christian businessman or as a teacher or as a parent? All the implications of this are huge, and they're huge for our society. God's image bearers, people I'm talking about here, not just Christians, people, should be marked by a correspondence between their words and reality. And after the fall, the fact is, usually that correspondence is not there. We use words not to express reality, but to use we use them to get what we want. We use them to exercise power. The deconstructionists are right at one level, that we do use language, we do use words to take control over people. But that's not the only possibility for language, because we believe in a God who speaks and his word is true, and it's spoken by one who came and lived what he spoke, that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And yet the reality is we don't use our words that way most of the time. Right? I love uh, Patty Griffin's song, Christina. You guys know, I, I just love this song, especially when I heard her say one time that it was, she wrote it about Christina Onassis, 
you guys are probably too young to remember Christina Onassis, but at one point she was the richest girl in the world. But her life was a mess. She's actually dead now. She eventually died of a heart attack because of all the drug overdoses and stuff that she'd had. She was married four times, never longer than two years. And Patty Griffin raises this question so profoundly in this song, but it's really everybody's question in a world after the fall. Listen to this. If you had the real thing, how would you tell? Liars can say it all just as well. Every single word you've heard in vain. And then I kind of skipped out of the chorus. Who would know better than you? A hundred love letters and none of them true. Christina. Christina. Every one of you has to deal with that reality after the fall. If you have the real thing, how would you tell? Liars can say it all just as well. And they do all the time. Marva Dawn, one of my favorite writers, says that in a world where we use language and, and words like stupendous and amazing to describe laundry detergent, how can you even talk? You know, what words are left for things that really matter? And in the Christian community, there's a lot of things we need to say that really matter. Things we need to say to God and to each other. And yet we live in a culture that is so debased language. And we ourselves have debased the language. After the fall, you see, this language that God gave to build community is often the thing that keeps community from happening. Because we're not true to our words. And it's especially important that Christians take care in how we use God's name. Do you know why? Because the church is supposed to be a colony of the coming kingdom. The church should be a place where people can see that there is another way to live. That there is a way that you can live where your words aren't just used to take advantage of people. And God has, has, has said to us, we are to be the ones to demonstrate for the watching world that there's a different way to live. We're not to use words that invoke God's authority and his blessing when it doesn't correspond to reality. We do it all the time, and then we wonder why people who aren't Christians think that we're so ridiculous. It's a huge barrier, and it's one that we all need to take seriously. It means that we shouldn't use God's name, or anyone's name for that matter, or any words, frivolously. i got lots of examples. I just stopped at five. How often has somebody said to you, God told me? I, I, I meet people every, almost every month that say, God told me to move to Nashville. And I say, really? What chapter and verse? And, and, when, and when it falls apart and you're, you, know, you go running home because things didn't work out as you planned, then what will people think of your God? Be a little more humble, please. <laughs> say, you know, I think God you know, wants me to come here. I, I wrestled with it in prayer and got good counsel. And you know, I, I think this would be a good place to be. That's fine. Because then if it doesn't work out, you say, well, maybe I was wrong. Or maybe God really wanted me to go through a trial and coming here. But God told me to come to Nashville. Set you up for, for some huge issues. How will you know? How will you know if God can really speak to you? Especially when you attach this phrase, God told me, to things that you probably don't have a right to attach it to. And we can sit and argue about this over a cup of coffee if you want. But my understanding of the scripture is the only people that speak for God are 100% accurate in everything they say. And otherwise, they should be stoned. And I can show you in Deuteronomy 13 and chapter 18 where it says that. 
So you shouldn't be frivolously throwing around, God told me this and God told me that, unless you have chapter and verse for it. And when we do, we do it all the time. And it, and it, it brings real dishonor upon God, but it also hurts God's people and their ability to trust his words because it gets so confusing. What's he really said? And what's, you know, my own feelings? Uh, another one, let's do lunch. You, you're here in Nashville long enough, you know? You learn, you know, the kind of music, yeah, great, good to see you, let's do lunch. And nobody means it, right? Here's one that might hit closer to home. I love you. And, 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 you know, in a room this size, I know there are people here that have said it and they shouldn't have. And there's people who've had it said to them and it shouldn't have been said to them. And I'm talking more about, you know, guys and girls relationships. Um, sometimes it gets said by parents and yet you wonder if it's really true, right? I, I mean, word, you know, we, we use our words sometimes trivially. I promise. This is the one that hits me because I'm always, uh, as a parent, you just always want to, you hate to disappoint your kids, and sometimes you tell them you'll do something, and then something comes up, and you can't. And it just, oh, I don't want my my kids to grow up thinking that their dad uses words frivolously. Yet the reality is, I do. I do, and I may be well-meaning, but I still use words frivolously. Tacking in Jesus' name on the end of very selfish prayers, like it's a little magic formula. Uh, another, another thing, it means that we don't attach God's name and God's authority to causes without scriptural warrant. And Christians love to do that, don't they? And uh, I think Dylan has a, has, a, has a good critique of that. His song with God on your side, you know, you know that, that song? Um, not saying I, I agree with him on every particular political philosophy, but I think that's a good song. And um, he has a line in there where he says, you never ask questions when God's on your side. Talking about war and how we tend to invoke, you know, God, and this side invokes God, and this side invokes God. Which, whose side is God really on? You need to be very careful about invoking God's name for any cause with, that you don't have scriptural warrant to do that. Our words should be trustworthy. Again, Jesus says, let your yes be yes. And, and I have to ask, and I have to ask myself, where am I afraid to let my words match reality? Where are you afraid to let your words match reality? Are you afraid to tell the truth to your friends? Are you saying one thing with your words? I don't really want to date you, and yet you're treating this person like a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Saying a very different thing with your body language, with the way you spend your time? We, 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 there's all kinds of places where our yes is not yes, and our no is not no. The church should be a place where the way of life that leads to true human flourishing can be seen. Again, this is what God intends for human beings, that their words would be faithful and true and trustworthy. And the church should be a place, if any place, where words are taken seriously and used carefully, but often it's a place where careless language and even lies are tolerated. We fail at this command all the time. It hurts us, and it's a huge barrier to people taking God seriously when it seems that we don't take him very seriously at all. And the reality is this. God requires consistency between our words and reality. But I'll tell you, and you know this, Jesus is the only one who really did what he said he would do. And for some of you, you may think, well, there's nobody that really keeps their word. And the best way to get through life is to just 
not believe anything. The problem with that, I mean, we, a lot of us develop that life strategy just to get through this fallen world. And then we come to Christianity and there's this huge disconnect because now we're supposed to believe words. But all of our life we've been trained to disbelieve words so that we don't get hurt and disappointed. God says, I will, and he does. And this is what saves you know, us. Because we look at ourselves and we say, we don't keep, these, we keep our words. We don't. And what saves us, our only hope, is that Jesus did what he said he would do. He did what he said. He gave his life as a ransom. Jesus is the only one whose words and actions are one. He says things like this, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, and he did those things. He did come to seek, and he did seek out those who were lost, and he did give his life as a ransom, because you and I don't keep our word. Jesus was crucified for blasphemy, but he never uttered a blasphemous word in his life. But you did. You did. And if you don't think that it's a serious deal, why did Jesus suffer death and hell on a cross? We need to be gripped by how serious it is to take the Lord's name in vain because it's what put Jesus on a cross. And he didn't deserve it. But you did. And I did. So we can't just blow this off. But listen, what Jesus did and the fact that he did what he said he would do is what gives us power to keep our word. Listen, why is it that we lie? Why is it that we make promises and we don't follow them through? Almost always, it's because of our pride or our fear. We're afraid of being exposed. We, we don't want to be humbled. We're afraid that if I follow through on this, I might miss out on something, some other opportunity. If I keep this commitment, I'll miss out on some other commitment, some other opportunity, or... Um, I might be, you know, there are all kinds of negative things that can happen if I, if I don't lie and get out of this. But I'll tell you, the only hope for changing and being a person who keeps your word and whose words matter is if, if you find that you can go to the cross and have it deal with your fear and your pride. Here's the big picture. Our words matter. They matter so much that Jesus died on a cross for blasphemy. But at that cross, he paid what all of us blasphemers need to pay. And when we go there and we fall at the feet of, the, of Jesus at the cross and we look at him, we find power to say, why would I lie? What do I need to be afraid of if Jesus went all the way to hell for me? And, and what do I need to protect? What reputation do I need to protect as Jesus lays, you know, is up there naked, stripped, bleeding, taking on all of the humiliation that I deserve for the way I've mistreated God? Why, why do I think that I need to, 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 to sort of portray to people that I've got it all together? Of course I don't have it all together. 
Jesus on the cross is the demonstration that I don't have it all together. So why am I still trying to pretend? Steve Taylor, I, I love his song. Uh, um, I love his old record, Squint. If you've never heard that record, Squint, you should seek it out. He's got a song called Jesus is for Losers. And he, he, he asks this question. He says, if Jesus is for losers, why do I still play to the crowds? If Jesus is for losers, why, you know, why do I feel like I need to pretend that I'm not one? Right? The reason that we lie, the reason we don't keep our word as a, as a people, as a church community, is because we're afraid and because we're too proud to admit that we're a mess. But Jesus at the cross should undercut both of those things, and it should change us. And if it's not changing us, then we need to be reoriented again to Jesus and the cross and what that means. And that's why it's so important that the words we use in this community among ourselves are words that are speaking the truth of the gospel of grace. That we're speaking words to one another say, yes, you're a mess. Of course. What did you expect? But Jesus is a great Savior. Love Spurgeon's words. He says, I have a great need for Jesus, and I have a great Jesus for my need. You can never out Jesus. Run to Jesus. Art should not be a community where people come say, I'm really having, having trouble. Say, well, you know, uh, you know, I'll be mad with you and we'll both be mad at that professor. Instead of saying, well, have you ever thought that maybe you need to repent? You know, I'm not saying that you don't get sinned against, but I'm saying that in this community, our words should be directing one another to the cross. Because if we want to change, if we want to actually not just mourn and mope around because the church doesn't keep its word, it's going to have to begin with us. And the only way that we can change is if our fear and our pride get the bottom cut out of them. And it's at the cross that that happens. We've got to take, take our fears and take our pride and hold it up to the cross until they start to fall apart. Because they have a hold of us. And they have no right to have a hold of us. Because Jesus died so that you wouldn't be afraid. It says that in the book of Hebrews. That Satan held us in captive by, by death. But Jesus has conquered that. We shouldn't be afraid of death anymore. What else is there to be afraid of? That's why it's so important that we speak words to each other about what Jesus did. It's the only way that our other words are ever going to be better, are ever going to be more faithful and true. I, I think that's really, that's, that's, that's where we need to stop with this. I mean, again, we have so many important words to say in this Christian community. We need to pray that we would learn how to talk. I think, you know, again, it's one of the reasons you need to be in the scriptures. How, how else are you going to learn who God is and how to speak about him? How else are you going to learn how to be a witness for him in this world that desperately needs to know truth? Words matter. And this should be a community where words are valued. And we're growing, where we're growing in our faithfulness because we're growing in our ability to take our fears and our pride and hold it up to the cross until they start to fall apart. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do thank you that there is power at the cross to deal with our fear and our pride. And we ask your forgiveness for our unbelief. That we, we, we feel like we just can't, we can't change. Lord, forgive us for that. And help us to be true encouragers, not flatterers, but encouragers who know how to help each other run to the cross. We want to be a people whose words matter. And we want you to work that in us by giving us more and more confidence in your words. 
The only way that we can keep our works is if we have faith in your works. That you will never leave us or forsake us. Even as we sang tonight. Lord, that, those words are true words. And may they change the way we speak.